0: Welcome. You are listening to intentional conversations from Nika White Consulting, an encore presentation of our weekly podcast where we intersect diversity, equity, and inclusion with leadership and business. Let the conversation begin. If you've been a part of our community, you know that I always take an opportunity before I bring on our guest co-host to give an official introduction of them. I do read their bio. I always want you to know their accolades, their credentials, how they show up to this space. And I think it's important to do so. And then I will invite Sharon to unmute herself and welcome this audience in her own way. Sharon Hurley-Hall is an educator, a writer, and anti-racism activist. She is a co-founder and equality lead at Mission Equality, committed to building the company on a foundation of equality, anti-racism, and humanity. She previously led the Diversity, Equity, and Belonging team at a disruptive ed tech startup where she was instrumental in operationalizing a progressive approach to anti-racism across the business. Sharon is the founder and curator-in-chief of Sharon's Anti-Racism Newsletter, a twice-weekly online publication sharing global experiences of racism and guidance on better allyship. She is also the author of Anti-Racism Essay Collection, I'm Tired of Racism, and Exploring Shadism. We're going to talk about both of those. But they detail colorism, which is a really important topic that we don't spend enough time on. I'm so super excited to welcome my friend. She and I both We're a part of a mastermind group together. And so we've been supporting each other for quite some time now. And I look forward to you all having a chance to hear from her. So I'm gonna stop sharing my screen. You know what to do, Vodcast community. I encourage you to go to the chat, find those emojis, or if you're LinkedIn live, go to the comment section and help me to welcome uh, our guest co-host today, Sharon Hurley-Hall. And I'm going to actually uh, ensure that I can magnify you, Sharon. And I think I gave you a little bit of heads up that one of the things that we always like to do is to make sure that our guest co-hosts as they're greeting the community to share with us something that we would not know about you from reading your bio or from, um, you know, just actually looking at your LinkedIn profile. So what can you share with us, Sharon? And welcome, my friend.
1: Thank you, Dr. Nika. And I'm delighted to be here. And I see some familiar faces here. So thanks for being with us. What would people not know from my LinkedIn bio? Well, it's there if you look all the way down. I'm a Reiki master teacher. I've been a Reiki practitioner since 2006. It is there, but it's not something I talk about a lot. Uh, What else? I have lived in several countries. People know this, um, including a year in France. And Mm -hmm. I, I, I currently live in Barbados, which I think some people are already aware of. What else? Um, I regard myself as a global citizen. Um, Mm. That is because I was born in one place, grew up in several others, traveled around the world, and it's very difficult for me to pick one identity to stick to. So how about that? (laughs) That That's
0: great. That's lots of good insights that you've led us into um, your world on. And I will say, because you mentioned that you're from Barbados, actually that's where you are right now, but because you are in the um, Caribbean, We know that sometimes it can be a little spotty. You alerted me of that. So I'm just putting it out there because it's usually Sharon and I were joking. We said it's always the times that you don't communicate that, that something goes wrong. So we're communicating it just to see if we can kind of keep, you know, all of the the bad vibes away. No issues today. It's not going to happen. Only because we've already said that it's not going to happen. Okay. (laughs) So fantastic. So I want to jump right in. There's so much that I know that um, you have to share with this community, and and, and maybe because we have a personal relationship, I've been kind of behind the scenes of some of your work. I can't wait for this broader community to learn more about what you do. So let's first start with this um, this, this strong activism around um, fighting against racism. When did you realize that your mission in life sharing was to fight racism and work towards an equitable society? Tell us about that journey.
1: That has been a really interesting journey, Nika, because it's something, you know, like most Black people, you're aware of inequality for pretty much most of your life. Absolutely. Right, but you don't necessarily do anything about it, you don't necessarily talk about it, it's just part of the fabric of your life. But I think, and you know, on and off over, you know, I'm a writer, or was originally a writer, it's not my main profession anymore, and you know, from time to time, I would, you know, drop a little thought about something that was going on that related to racism. And then George Floyd was murdered. Mm. And like many people, like many Black people, I felt a deep, soul deep tiredness, this whole system of racism, right, that was affecting the lives of so many of us, that was killing so many of us, And so I wrote an essay called I'm Tired of Racism. And I basically, at that point, I wrote it for myself. I was Mm. tired. I was a writer. So I used that to just write out some of the angst. But people started responding and conversations started happening. Other people were writing. And I realized that I had more to say from all these different experiences I had had in the Caribbean, in England, in France, in the US, in different parts of the world. And I had more to say. And I came to realize that, you know, there's a power in sharing those stories. And if we don't tell those stories, how are people even going to know? How are they going to be, have the information they need in order to be moved to change things? I mean, you know, we all think, you know, we're human beings, you know, treating people and recognizing their humanity should be obvious. But for some reason, the stories help. And so that started me on the path in 2020. And I basically have not shut up since.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And we're so glad that you haven't because I am a fan of your work. I follow your writings. I subscribe to your newsletter. And I think that your voice is really powerful. And one of the things that I want to just take a moment to say to you, Sharon, is I want want to encourage you. And the reason why is because as someone who's in this space, I realize how hard it is to speak truth And to do it where you do not have to be impacted by some of the negativity of trolls and other naysayers. And that can be really, really heavy. And we certainly share those stories. And um, I just appreciate the fact that you put yourself in a situation to where you know that harm could come to you, but you do it yet still within the capacity that you feel like you can without it harming you. Just because you believe in the importance of speaking anti-racism and helping people in every way possible to also gravitate towards that work. So I just want to thank you so much for your voice and um, for continuing to be steadfast even when it gets hard. So thank you. thank
1: you. Thank you so much, Nika. And I know that you, you and many others know that it does take a toll. And there, and there are days when you wonder whether you should keep going or how you can even keep going. But then, you know, what makes it worth it is the times when you know that, you can, that someone has shifted their attitude. You can see a little change. And even mm-hmm. changing the mind or shifting the attitude of a single person makes it worth it to me.
0: Yeah, I love that. I love that. And you are a big storyteller. You know, you were talking a little bit about that a moment ago and how stories really connect us and they're really important. So I may be putting you on the spot a little bit here, but I know that you have tons of stories that have come your way. And so, since the impact is so important and it helps to refuel us when we do feel like, oh, I've had enough, right? (laughs) I've had enough. And so, if you could think of one impressionable story of impact from your voice, because I know there's tons of them, what comes to mind for you? I would love for you to socialize that. With this community.
1: I can think of I can think of two pieces, actually, that really seem to make a difference to people. Um, well, one of them was uh, an article that I wrote called "Paper Cuts Still Make You Bleed," which was about the microaggressions and the the, the continuous depredations of of racism, tiny acts tiny things that seem, they seem tiny individually, but they they accumulate and the harm accumulates. And, you know, someone said to me, a friend uh, said to me the other day, you know, that's the piece that made me take a paid subscription to your newsletter, Mm -hmm. right? And Mm -hmm. I know it's one that has got a lot of, um, it has resonated with a lot of people. It's It's one of the pieces I actually wrote before I even formally launched the newsletter. And I got responses to that because, it was just here are all the things that you would go through in a day. The other piece that did that was something that I wrote called What if the tables were turned? Mm. And I I I shared I shared some images, some 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 experiences that we have had as Black people, as Black mm-hmm. peoples across the global community. Right. And I said, Well, if these things had happened to you how would you feel about it? If someone had stolen your children away and sold them across the world, you would call that trafficking and you would be very upset. If someone said that your straight blonde hair had to be put into cornrows, you would find that weird, right? I, just little experiences yeah. that we go through every day that people take as the black human condition, but don't need to be. And so yeah. those two pieces, I would say, are two of the, the stories. That, that Both of them, I think, the power in them was that they encapsulated lots of mini stories, mini experiences, and people were able to relate to them.
0: Yeah, no, I love that. Someone placed into the chat, Toki, by the way. Hi, Toki, thanks for being here. Death by a thousand paper cuts. And we've heard that a lot when we speak of like microaggressions. Yeah, it may, it may seem like it's micro with that one singular incident, but the fact that we are exposed to so many of them all the time, it definitely has a bigger impact. And so I love the flipping of the script, if you will, um, by way of the analogies and the examples, well, what if this were the case? Then how would you feel? I think that could be really um, powerful to help people connect to some of the challenges and the trauma that, um, you know, people experience when they are oppressed because of the color of their skin. So you mentioned at the start, Sharon, that you have lived in a number of countries, and I would imagine that that also has a lot to do with your view, your, your reflections, and, how, and your perspectives, and how in which you show up to this work. So can you speak a little bit about just from the fact that you've spent time in several countries, how racism differs in other parts of the world and are some governments from your perspective better or worse, you know, in terms of overturning systemic structures that may negatively impact marginalized people or black people, let me just say it. Um, Yes, share with us your thoughts.
1: That is is such a great question, Nika, because, you know, what I can say is that I have experienced racism in pretty much every country that I have lived in or visited. Mm-hmm. And so that is the same whether it is a black majority country or a white majority country.
0: interesting. because
1: yeah. because, you know, i I spent a lot of time in the Caribbean,
0: mm-hmm. right?
1: If you grow up in the Caribbean, you're still in a white supremacist system because that is the, you know, the, the hairier heritage is enslavement and the plantocracy, right. And so, much the same way that you have those systems embedded in, in places like the US, you have those similar systems embedded in in Caribbean countries. Cosmetically, it looks different. And, and that does make a difference, you know, in that, you know, I, I chose, for example, to raise my daughter here
2: mm-hmm. Because I
1: know that when she goes to school, when she went to school, the color of her skin was not the first thing that people saw. And they did not change their expectations of her based on that.
0: Yeah.
1: So that, right. So that was really, really important. She's she's now 20 and she's she's um, in the UK. Um, but. I think that the experience of racism. Many of the experiences of racism are equally bad everywhere. You know, if you don't get a house, or you don't get a job, or you get microaggressions, it really doesn't matter whether you're in the UK, the US, the Caribbean, wherever. Where where there is a difference is is that your life is much more at risk as a black person in the US is my ex is my my experience. I remember once being at an event in in New York and it was a bunch of people mostly black and everybody in the room there were 50 something of us except for me and 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 you know a couple of us that were from the caribbean everybody else in the room had had a family member affected by gun violence many of them had lost people many of them had lost people to police brutality you know and and so and so that is that is the difference Um, what I see happening in other places is that they're heading back to, they're turning towards the right. So some of the laws that have offered protections may be undone or may be less robust. So I don't know that it is good anywhere. I think that there are places where you can be partly insulated depending on how you move through the world from time to time, but, but, you know, but there are people in that same space, you know, you can be in England and people will smile and say good morning and be nice to you. And, you know, at the same time they're, you know, they're deporting people back to black owned countries and they're they're cutting down on your protections in law. You know, it's, you know, we really need a complete rethink everywhere.
0: Yeah, Yeah, a complete reset everywhere. You used language that I found very interesting. You said, although it's, it cosmetically looks different when you were talking about you know, the decision that you made for your daughter. Um, And that's interesting, because I think that for a lot of us, especially maybe a lot of us that aren't well traveled from a global perspective, we may perceive that certain areas where there are a lot of people who may look like the global majority, um, black and brown skinned people, that racism is not as prevalent. And um, what we're hearing is that, yeah, that is that is kind of we're misguided by that. (laughs) If we don't yeah, really um speak to people like yourself and and dig into it deeper to understand that it 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 does it does still show up.
1: It does, it does. And you know, it 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 shows up in it shows up in different ways. Okay, when I was when I was quite young and you know, looking for my first job and I had my hair braided, right? And the person who was interviewing me, who happened to be a white woman, she says, Well, if you get this job, you cannot wear your hair like that. Okay. So that is hair in a country <laughs> where 95% of the population is black. Right. So it's the same thing that Americans Mm -hmm. are facing, that Brits are facing where black kids are getting their hair cut off when they go to school and, you know, and they have them in locks. You know, it's like. The 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 foundation of the system is the same. You know, the Europeans exported their brand, (laughs) their brand of racism everywhere. Right. So it still exists in those countries. It still exists in the countries they colonized. You know, it, you know, the, 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 the legacy of those attitudes has remained both in black majority and in white majority countries. Yeah. And I think we're fooling ourselves if we think it's otherwise.
0: Yeah. Well stated. Well stated. Um, so I want to talk about exploring shadism. Um. First, I just the language there, I love it. It's it's very catchy. It definitely um, allows for a good bit of intrigue for people to want to engage deeper. But let's talk about your book, Ex- Exploring Shadism. I know that it examines um, psychological and sociological effects of shadism. So tell us, unpack shadism. What is it and why is it important? Why did you decide to write about it? And what kind of impact has this conversation um, had so far? Okay.
1: So, Shadeism started as a master's research project, and I wanted to do something. I was in England at the time. I wanted to do something rooted in my country and culture. Mm -hmm. I also wanted to, what a lot of people don't realize from the outside is that different Caribbean islands have different cultures, right? Everybody Mm -hmm. thinks of it as the islands or the Caribbean, but honestly, there's no such thing in in, in terms (laughs) of the individual culture. So, I used to live in Trinidad, and then I I moved to Barbados when I was about 12. And Barbados is one of these countries that had, it wasn't as diverse in population as some of the other countries in the Caribbean. So there was definitely a noticeable polarization between the the white descendants and the black descendants, shall we say. And so, and, and, and also going back to what I said about white supremacy culture, in places with a history of enslavement that was very obvious so shadism is what people called it then and what i call it but you know more more recently people have called it colorism it's the same thing discrimination yeah. on the basis of skin shade you know the lighter you are the closer to european looking the more prestige you have in society and while i don't think that i don't think it's ever totally gone away Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, in my parents' time and grandparents' time, you know, you you had to be light skinned to get jobs Mm -hmm. as teachers, to work in banks, to get the more, you know, and you know, you got more so called menial jobs if you were darker skinned. You know, Mm -hmm. education helped to level that a little bit, but there's still, you know, I I clearly remember people talking about good hair, right? Mm -hmm. Who has not heard about good hair? You know, (laughs) the more the more the more African your hair was the less good it was yeah right yeah you know, i remember going through the hair straightening and mm-hmm. the curling and all this kind of thing you know the you know all of those things were prized you know your your natural language and dialect was something to be kept for certain situations but was not professional um yeah. i don't think that has actually gone away right
2: no. <laughs> you so right all of that
1: plays into i mean i i've i've i've, I've I've gone away a little bit, but it, it it's all part of it. It's like where, where are the spaces that where you are welcome based on the color of your skin? And it's it's one of the things that I remember very clearly in the in the 70s, actually, in Barbados is somebody um, somebody published a little piece in the newspaper called Without Apartheid. And it was talking about, it was comparing what happened in the country, even though mm-hmm. we didn't have an apartheid regime, the fact that you had, you know, black people and white people existing in different spaces. So, you know, people will work together and they'll be at school together, but socially often very mm-hmm. separated. And that is still the case, even it today. Is. That is still the case. So, yeah, yeah but, but I don't think, again, it's not something that's just in the Caribbean. That is something that exists everywhere you find black people and everywhere you find black people who are descendants of enslavement yeah right i'm sure and i know because i've talked to american friends that they have had the same thing in their communities i've i know people have had it in britain i know people have had it and you know and that that is before you even get to the same thing within within indian and south asian communities right Mm -hmm. that exists there Mm -hmm. too colorism
0: yeah No, absolutely. So the question that becomes, Sharon, I know this is a million dollar question is, you know, who's responsible for for breaking that cycle and and how can they or we, and I'm saying we, because I feel like it's probably everyone's responsibility to do what they can, but what is your perspective on that? Who's responsible and how? How do we break the cycle?
1: My perspective is that we all have a part to play in breaking the cycle. Mm -hmm. We have a part to play as as uh, black people indigenous people people of color uh, deliberately disadvantaged people we have we have a part to play in saying okay this stops with me yeah. i'm not going to perpetuate those harmful attitudes everyone else also has a part to play in recognizing what they have inherited from their ancestors right you know you know some of us have in, in inherited roles of, uh, of the oppressed and some have inherited the roles of the oppressors (laughs) not to to find a a point on it and right Right. and so we with those people can also say well okay I'm not going to be an oppressor I'm actually going to do what I can to redress the balance I am I am not going to you know cast my movie with a diverse cast and only put light-skinned black people in it
0: (laughs) right yes or people that are ethnically ambiguous right (laughs) ethnically ambiguous right (laughs) you know, you
1: know, you know, so we all have things that we can do, you know, we all have, you know, we can do things in terms of who we hire, what we consider to be professional, you know, there, there, there are all kinds of attitudes that are related to this that come out of this white supremacist culture that we have to change. And we're all responsible for doing our part to change them. And the people that have the most privilege and power are the people that are able to Change those systems at source.
2: And Mm -hmm. they have
1: a responsibility to do that if they don't want to continue to be part of the problem. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot just by surviving. I have to be honest.
0: (laughs) You can say that a million times over. We've done a lot just by surviving. That is a mouthful and it's so powerful and it's so true. And so I think that's why, you know, when I was introducing you, I talked about how we've had a lot of conversations behind closed doors about ease and abundance, ease and abundance. And some, May, you know, be a fly on the wall hearing that conversation and thinking you just want life to be easy. No, it's because you have to realize what we've done already. It's hard in and of itself. And so, yes, I deserve to be able to have a life of, of some ease on certain days. Right. Agreed. And abundance because that's been that's been we've been so oppressed from that. And so I, I appreciate you bringing this to the conversation. I'm also hearing a lot sharing, and I want your perspective on this about how, and this goes back to my appreciation of your saying, this work belongs to all of us, right? Sometimes I think that the notion can be the white people have to fix it only, but I think that there's a part for all of us to play and because what i am what i am re- realizing even when i do my own self reflection and even when i think about you know others that look like me sometimes we also perpetuate some of those challenges because of you know we are also conditioned towards the to center whiteness right and so I love that our friend, Dr. Janice Gassim, she talks a lot about in her new book is decentering whiteness, because if we aren't careful, unconsciously, we can do the same thing, even as black and brown people, just because that's the world that we live in. You know, that white adjacency, it just is something that we've always had to try to, um, you know, navigate. So it's kind of embedded in some of our psyche as well. And so there's a lot of things that we need to do to try to help bring that to the forefront so that we can stop perpetuating what um, is, is continuing to create harm. So what are your thoughts on that?
1: I actually, I, I totally agree with you there, Nika. You know, we've grown up in these systems. Yeah. The systems in which we have all been raised, center whiteness and privileged mm-hmm. right, whiteness. You know, we see it in our day to day. We see it in the institutions. We see it in the systems. We see it in the structures. We see it in the media. And yeah. that has not changed. Yeah. Even, even right here in 2023, that is still the same. So we ourselves, people that look like you and me have to say to ourselves and have to ask ourselves when we're contemplating doing something, am I centering whiteness here? Am I? You know, when, and in the, work we, in the work that we do, if you're doing anti-racism and DEI work, that's a question that you have to ask yourself too because, yeah. because you know sometimes hard truths need to be said that people may not find comfortable right? And sometimes you might find in yourself a tendency to, to dial it back a little bit just to make it a little more palatable. But are you doing anyone any favors, yourself or the person in the conversation with you? So yeah. I, think, I think definitely all of us in this work have to recognize that we have been raised and socialized to center whiteness, and undoing it may be the work of the rest of our lives, right? Yes.
0: Sharon, that is so good. I want to I want to socialize an example, real life example that um, we're navigating right now at NWC, and I think it speaks to precisely what what we're talking about. Um, Examples can be really powerful for helping to kind of connect the dots. But we have a client that we are supporting an executive within their organization with um, with coaching, coaching specifically around building up their 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 cultural intelligence and and just you know centering um, humanity because the Great tactician, but the style and the approach sometimes is challenged. And as we were providing, you know, a couple different coach candidate options um, to the organization, one of the things that we had to be really clear to communicate is that we're not putting these coach candidates in front of you for you to interview and qualify them. We've already given you their credentials; they are qualified. Rather. This conversation is very explicitly for you to be able to provide any background, contextual knowledge that can really help the coach also decipher whether or not they want to be partnered with this individual executive. And so oftentimes, every time we walk into spaces, it seems like we're always being qualified, qualified, qualified by someone else. And usually that someone else does not look like us. So for me, it was so important to make sure that I communicated that. I don't want my coach candidates walking in feeling like, you're qualifying them. No, they're here to be of service to you. And you are to give them to some insight and be a resource so that the final coaching client can make the decision. And so I just wanted to share that example because literally we're dealing with that right now. And, and fortunately, this client is is very astute and they completely obliged and agreed. And it was never even a thought, but I just felt it was important to make sure. A really, anyway,
1: a real, yeah. that's, a, that's, a, that's a really good example because yeah. so often, you know, we're qualified, we're overqualified, and people are still yeah. asking questions about our credentials. Yeah. And it's like, yeah,
0: exactly. You know, yeah. Are you scrutinizing yeah. us to the same degree in which maybe you're scrutinizing, you know, the white male counterparts that perhaps but, dis- are in the yeah. consideration set? And yeah. We so know why,
1: why, we know why that's know not happening.
0: Here? Yeah, why do it here. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to shift momentarily, and I definitely want to give the audience a chance to ask you questions, whether through those who are joining us LinkedIn Live, you can place it into the comments, and our team is paying attention there. They will bring it to this conversation, or here, if you would like to ask a question, you can let me know that by using the raise hand feature, um, and then I will invite you to unmute yourself and share. So while maybe folks are thinking about some of the questions, perhaps, that are coming up for you, um, I want to talk about your book, I'm Tired of Racism. How long did it take you to write that first and foremost? That's what I want to know. How long did it take you?
1: Well, the book almost wrote itself, Nika, because (laughs) what I did, I was was writing my newsletter. Mm -hmm, I was writing mm -hmm. my newsletter and someone said to me, you know, I don't want a regular newsletter subscription, but I would love to read your work. Have you thought of collecting it? I thought, I said, no, I haven't, but I will now. And (laughs) so... so, I went, you know, one weekend I went and I collected some of the pieces from my, the early, this is from like the start, the first year of my newsletter. Mm -hmm, I had mm -hmm. a couple of things that I'd written that I'd never um, posted. I put them all together. And so that initial part didn't take very long. It did take me another two years to actually get the book out. There was a little bit of, you know, there was a little bit of um, back and forth with how I was going to get it published and you know i was going to go with a small publisher then it didn't work out that that basically cost me a year yeah. and then and then the after once i'd once i decided that i was going to self publish it didn't take that long although come to think of it i suppose it still took nearly 10 months to get the book out <laughs> you know yeah. it's not a quick yeah. process and you know this yourself having a book yes. out right you know writing yeah. the book is almost in some ways can be the easiest part when you have to edit it and make it make sense and then do all the promotion and get the cover design, all of that takes a long time.
0: Yeah. Let me tell you why I, I asked that question, Sharon. Um, you know, when you think about the topic and the stories, um, I can imagine that even though even though the the compilation of, of work that you had written over a different time that you pulled together, there was a good bit of time of editing and then really making sure that you were picking all the right stories. So you were reliving and re-exposing yourself to these stories. So my question is, how did you manage self-care? During that process. Did you decompress? Did you allow yourself breaks? Did you take a step back? What did you do to just be able to um, have a fortitude to see that through because I don't, I don't, I don't want to see you as superhuman just because you have the emotional capacity to, to have delivered now and produce this book that Um, is I would, I would imagine it's really hard to write and was really hard to, to edit. So tell us about your self-care practices.
1: Right. Yeah. I'm definitely not superhuman Nika. And there are times when there there were definitely times in the process when I put down the book for a while, I would head to the beach. I would go and read something that was, you know, had nothing to do with anti-racism at all. You know, mm-hmm. I would go and watch, watch some trash on Netflix, <laughs> you know, oh, yes. whatever, whatever, you know, I, w- doing this work you do, I find you do need to step away sometimes and, and just shift what's going on in your brain because because it does get heavy. It does mm-hmm. get heavy. And, you know, I often say to people and, and what you've just referred to, Nika, is that this is not academic for me. This is stuff that I have lived, that we are yeah. living. We're all living yeah. it when, you know, it's not, and it's not like we lived it and it's gone. It's like, we are living it day in, day out. And I can mm-hmm. say that even right here in Barbados, I mean, I had some heavy trolling on a platform last week, last weekend, you know, this is not, this is not something that is, this is not something that I'm writing down in a book and it's, you know, it's, it's out there away from me. This is some right. in my life. This is our lives.
0: I, it's coming so sometimes directly to your front door to your yes absolutely yeah, yeah yeah um well, I'm not seeing any hands raised right now so um but continue to think about maybe your questions and curiosities that you're holding but I, I have lots and lots and lots of questions Sharon. so um I want to talk about the intersection of Dei work and anti-racism work you know there are a lot of practitioners that are in this space under the broad umbrella of all the things, right but then there are some that very um, explicitly, um, will make their work about anti-racism. What do you share with practitioners that are um, or, or, or mostly kind of under the general theme of DEI about the importance of incorporating the anti-racism lens directly into that work? What should that intersection look like exactly?
1: Okay, so I think that anti-racism is foundational to DEI.
0: Great. I think a lot of
1: the inequities that lots of deliberately disadvantaged groups face have been honed in the practice of uh, of racism. And so I believe that when you start to undo the harms caused by racism and you redress the inequities caused by racism, you make things better for all deliberately disadvantaged communities. And so I don't see how you can do DEI without taking that into consideration.
0: Absolutely. You know? Yeah. I mean,
1: that's a short answer, but that's the answer.
0: <laughs> no point blank period. I I am right there. I'm right there with you. So I shared a little bit. Well, actually, I do see a hand raised right now. And so I'm going to invite that audience member's question. And it's actually Jared Carroll, who has been a guest on our podcast before. So Jared, I'm going to add you to the spotlight. Thanks for being here and joining us today. What question or comments do you have?
2: Yeah, thank you, Nika. And Sharon, uh, when I saw that you were on this week, I normally I can't make this because of work commitments. Like, oh, I have Friday morning free. I'm going to see it. So awesome <laughs> to see you. And nice to, I know we've exchanged ideas in the past, but nice to see you and actually talk to you now for the first time. My question is around, you know, we're seeing so much um, anti-woke backlash. I mean, Desantis, other, you know, there's some kind of high-profile examples, but it's 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 like a movement. So I guess my question for either one of you, but Sharon, you know, since you're the the guest of honor here, what what can and should we who are in this, these spaces, in whatever our role is, whether we're in-house, we're consultants, we're speakers, we're writers what what do we what do we need to do to to shift not not change but like shift to counter or counter the counter right because you know i think we i think we can agree everyone on this call knows it's a bunch of you know bs but it's it's out there and it's strong and, and it's 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 resulting in legislation and harm and and like this momentum so how do what is our I don't know. What is it? How does our approach shift a little bit so that we recognize that and then keep doing what we're doing um, to to counter that and, and gain back some of the momentum? Wow. That know. A... <laughs> <laughs> that's
0: know.
1: Tell us what <laughs> to do. Tell us,
0: tell Look, us what I to,
2: to do, Sharon. To to just do it.
0: I need time to censor myself. And so, Sharon, I need you to lean fully. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I am going to
1: I'm going to start by by telling a short story which is that I wrote about the misuse of woke a couple of weeks ago and one of my one of my friends white friend or I don't know if she's actually white but white presenting friend emailed me to say hey was I the person that you were talking about and you know and, and it basically started the conversation about what it meant the importance of recognizing people's humanity and you know and 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 who you were allying yourself with if you choose if you chose to be anti-woke. And when you say to people, when you say to people, this is what I found, when I say to people that the people who are anti-woke um, have have far-right views are often neo-nazis, don't privilege people's humanity, and, and the, you know you give some real examples of some of the things that the, the harms those people have caused. And then you know many people will say, well, I don't believe that. I don't want to be aligned with that and then this you start reclaiming the terminology and taking back control of the conversation. Now, I'm not in the US, so I don't know. What you do from a point of view of of fighting back, I mean, you have systems in place where you can set up petitions and you can you can, you know counter legislation. there are, there are some of, some of those systems in place. Now I recognize, I mean, looking from the outside, that you know the people that are um, pushing the so-called anti woke agenda are also the people that in those places seem to have a lot of power to push through what they want. Mm-hmm. so then you have to go back uh, go back a level and you know how can you change things in your community what is your local government situation is it you know are there ways to undermine it at that level you know are there are there situations in which people in certain areas can can change what happens in their community or their area and i know that there are mechanisms for that i'm not a, i'm not an expert but i know that they ex- they exist and so maybe that's one approach to take jared I'm going to turn mm-hmm. it over to Nika now.
2: <laughs> well, it's, it's a
0: great, it's a great question, and thank you, Jared, for your your boldness in presenting this question. Because I am keenly aware of all of the numerous conversations that have been surfacing around this very topic, you yeah. know, and they have not always been met with a lot of a, a lot of kindness in terms of trying to reach some common ground. Let me just put it that way. This is Nika's perspective. I believe that what we should not do necessarily is judge one's approach to it, especially when that one are individuals who are a part of the marginalized communities that are most impacted. And I say that because again, it goes back to, you can never fully understand those lived experiences unless you've been in that body and in those circumstances. And so for someone that may take more of a, um, What can be perceived as an aggressive approach to educating and helping people to lean in and to course correct and to see their ways. Um, You know, I I don't know what it it took to reach that place. I don't know why they have subscribed that particular um, approach and strategy as one that feels right for them. Um, So I don't judge that. What I am aware of is that this goes back to sharing what you shared. When you think about people that are in these positions of power and influence and they have large reach and audience and some of the harm through their words are very egregious, then I think that it is to be expected that from a public perspective, there's going to be some public criticism and calling in of those behaviors and even trying to correct them so that there's likelihood of behavioral change. I personally have made it my mission that I know who I'm trying to convince, who I'm trying to appeal to and who I'm not. People like DeSantis, they're not my audience to be honest with you. I just don't feel like I want to use my energy and my time in places where I feel like they their heels are deeply rooted into the sand and you're not going to move them. I would rather spend my time on people that I feel like are looking for tools and resources. Maybe they aren't fully woke, whatever that is. That's a whole nother conversation. But I would rather try to align with individuals that I feel like have the ability to be um engaged in a way where their learning can cause them to believe. And once you believe it, you know, then you, your actions begin to kind of align with it. Now that's just me, but again, I don't place any kind of, I don't place any judgment on anyone because I, again, I, I, I recognize that there are times where I really do want to kind of take that approach of, but um, I think that as as a DEI practitioner, we have to lead not only with our emotions, because we shouldn't take it completely out. You know, our emotions are part of why we have passion and we're deeply rooted in wanting to see this work really propelled to certain heights, but we also have to move with intellect, move strategically, move with kind of building bridges and not um burning bridges. And, and I think that all of that together is is um where we kind of hold the middle of the both ends. Now now that's me. I, you know, I, all practitioners are different. Go ahead, Sharon. You're 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 no, willing no, to no, jump I, in there. I
1: I wanted to jump in on on what you just said, Nika, about who your audience is. And and, yeah. and that's something that I've said from the beginning, you know, I'm talking to the persuadable. Yes. I'm talking to people yes. that have a little, you know, a little, there's a little aperture where, you know, you can let some light in, right? Yes. Start with those people, start with those people because, you know, when those people get it, they can talk to people that wouldn't talk to me, <laughs> right? Yes. Yes. Right? It's a yes. ripple effect. It's a ripple effect.
0: Yeah. right. And some criticize that, right? Some say, well, you're, you're talking to people who drink the Kool-Aid then, so how are you going to make a difference? No, because there are a lot of people who are passive about this work. They think it's important, they value it, but it's like, I'm going to sit on the sidelines. If we were to take just a percentage and a fraction of that population and get them on the side where they're actively trying to, um, you know, get engaged in ways that really is meaningful and leads towards impact, then that is a big movement, I believe, yes, that we can and, make.
1: And you see, I have seen this. You know, right? Some of the work, some of the work that we've done at Mission Equality, we have our anti-racist leaders association, and that builds on work that I was doing at the previous company, right? And so we facilitate a space where we do education for people, but we also let people come and ask questions. And what happens is, you know, and people come in at different points. You know, most of the people who come in have come in at a point where they recognize that something has to change, but they may not know everything. They may not have done all the reading and the learning yet, but they come in knowing that they want to do something differently, knowing that they want to move differently and they ask questions. And what I have seen is that by holding space for these people and giving them a space to ask questions and to learn their conversation and their confidence in tackling areas of disadvantage, in supporting people who face isms, their confidence in doing that grows and i have seen it because you know we we are very unashamedly it's an anti-racist leaders association but it spills over into their advocacy in for other groups as well right yeah
2: yeah
0: Yeah. it does it does really well stated sharon jared i so appreciate your question did we did we provide any enlightenment at all
2: so so much uh but thank you yeah awesome i I mean What Sharon, I mean, you both said it in in very uh, similar, but distinct ways that, but I think Sharon's last quote, you know, uh, teaching to the, you know, talking to the persuadable.
0: Persuadable. Yes. I
2: love that. That group who's, who is kind of, you know, could be persuaded by rhetoric, like a DeSantis. Yeah. Just because it seems like maybe it makes sense, but then it's it's your job, our job in this space to say, Hey, wait a second. What about this? You said Sharon earlier about um you know like being kind of uh, well you didn't say it exactly but the way I interpret it was like kind of like do you want to be on the right side of history or like uh-huh. who do you want to be aligned with now and and moving forward and and from a legacy perspective too so that right. I think that's um that is pers- persuasive and, and it should be for people who are willing to think about it and grapple with it so thank you yeah. both I think you've centered me enough so speaking of centering whiteness you can you can remove me from the uh from the pen um but thank, thank you both
0: Appreciate you being here. Thanks so much. Right.
2: You're
0: um, okay, so yeah, I I too, as Jarrett has mentioned, I'm seeing some commentary into the chat as well. But um, we're talking to the persuadable. That is that is now some new language that we're going to borrow <laughs> from you, Sharon because it's it's so eloquently stated. Um, so you just referenced briefly the mission equality that you that you launched. Talk to us a little bit further about that.
1: Okay, so mission equality. Aims to change the game in terms of leadership and in terms of education. Um, it grew out of there's a, there's a there's a whole backstory to do with to do with racism. My co-founder experienced at a previous company, and so you know she and I had been talking about a project to try and do things differently. And so this, in a nutshell, is where Mission Equality came from, and we. We went through a couple of iterations, but the name says what we're all about. You know, we want an equal world. Part of the way that we're doing that is by using our company to model a different way of leadership, right? We have no C-suite, everybody's on the same pay scale and we honor human needs. So, you know, it is true, you know, we may not get everything done as fast as you would in a corporate setting, but we allow people space to heal from whatever's going on in their life, whatever whether that is large or small, it is okay mm. to say, "Man, I'm having a day and I need some self care today." Right? I, that happened yesterday with a colleague of mine. Could we push our meeting back a day? Right? Mm. We have a no rush and no hustle culture. Mm. Right. And what, and what we're doing now is we're we're creating a leadership education program built on our rail framework: representation, equity, accountability, and and, and leadership to show a different way of leading that is more human centered, that is less extractive, that is about trust and freedom and not power and control. And eventually mm-hmm. we want to get to tackling the education system as well. Mm-hmm. That, mm. is it. that is it in a nutshell. And what I want tough. to say is we set out our vision in the black paper on equality. You know, you'll need a cup of coffee to sit down and read it. It's about 25 pages.
0: Send a so chat
1: uh, yeah, we talk about we talk about you know how we perceive we got here, what the vision is, and and how we get from one to the other, right? How how do we create a more equal world? And we will mm-hmm. be bringing out more black papers on mm-hmm. other aspects of this, but that was our first one.
0: I love it. So notice the the, the nomenclature there of black papers, not white papers. Um, first and like foremost, people. just wanted to wanted to <laughs> that. I our, our tagline. It.
1: Our tagline is. Because why should everything be white?
0: <laughs> exactly. exactly, exactly. So no more white papers, black papers. Yes, I, I love that. Um, so big question. I know this is is, is uh, black paper number one. You have more that's going to come out. That's obviously going to keep educating us. But from Sharon Hurley Hall's perspective, are we as a collective headed in the right direction?
1: I don't know that we're all having the right conversations yet. Hmm. Right. I think a lot of times and, you know, I, you know, I, I know many of us have talked about this. You know, we spend a lot of time studying the problem. People have spent a lot of time studying the problem. They keep, re- re- you know, releasing reports that said, oh, there are inequities here oh, their failings are there. But my question is, what are we actually doing? How are yeah. we actually progressing? We know this is centuries now. We know what the yeah. inequities are. We know what the right. problems are. How do we change things? How do we shift out of that, the paradigm that we're in? How do we think shift out of the system that we're in and, 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 and do something differently? Right. Uh, So I think that we need to, we need to be having different conversations. Um, I think lots of people are doing bits that are, you know, moving us bit by bit, you know, Mm -hmm. but it is hard to make change in a system that's stacked against you.
2: Yeah. It really is.
0: (laughs)
1: <laughs> you know so what if we what if we reimagined the system yeah right what if we reimagine yeah. the system yeah what if is one of is a question that we ask a lot in our company right mm. we're always thinking yeah. well how can, how can how can we do this differently why, right. are, why are we doing it this way how could we do it differently what if we tried a different
0: approach you know, I think that's smart. Yeah, there's so much we need to reimagine. We need to just, some stuff we need to just completely kind of blow up and just reset and start over. Right. Um, I'm, t- I'm totally with you on that. I'm, I'm watching the time, but there's another question that um, I'm really curious about. Um, do you think that Black people take on a disproportionate share of the work teaching anti racism, colorism, or shadism, as you say, and other systemic practices?
1: <laughs> oh, what a great question, Nika. Okay. <laughs> so the answer to that is the answer to that is multifaceted, actually. It is. because <laughs> on the one hand, if you are the one black person in an organization, you're probably going to be landed without work, right? And you will bear a disproportionate share of that of 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 that burden. At the same time, there are a lot of white folks out there making bank on anti-racism work when they have no lived experience, right? It's
0: Um, multifaceted, it's very delicate. Yeah, that's a lot to unpack there. It has to
1: be a team effort. I feel like, you you know, it's like nothing about us without us, right? You can't, you can't, it is very difficult, I think, to do anti-racism work and this kind of work unless you have some lived experience as well as whatever other credentials you might have. Right, many of us combine credentials with lived experience, which I think is the best thing. And I, but the, you know, I said when I was talking about my book earlier that it wasn't academic to me. And I think that often some of the people that have been thrust into the spotlight, you know, like they're getting rid of black the AI people left, right, and center. They're getting, to, <laughs> you know, and you know, but they're they're still white AI leaders out there with their jobs. But you know, it's it's. In some cases, for some people, it's, it's academic. They don't, they know, they don't feel it viscerally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I'm very, you know, I don't, I, you know, I'm not saying that they should not be involved because as I said at the start, as as we've discussed, Nika, this is everybody's responsibility to fix everybody's responsibility. Everybody has a role to play, but I think that you need to involve people of the global majority in this work, while at the same time, not having them bear the entire burden of it. And so you need to find that balance.
0: That part. It's the awareness of the need to do that. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I think that's a beautiful note to end on. Sharon, this has been lovely. Thank you so much for sharing with our podcast community. And um, I hope that you all will take advantage of what you've heard today, that you will uh, make sure that you bookmark that link to um, Exploring Shadism, the Black Paper, and that you'll also check out Sharon's book, I'm Tired of Racism. Um, June Juneteenth is coming up so I can tell you right now that Sharon does a lot of talks and so if you're looking for some kind of riveting talk your organization please consider my friend Sharon Hurley Hall it has been a pleasure I'm going to give you the final 10 seconds or so just to close this out in your own way
1: thank you so much Nika thanks everyone it has been a pleasure I want to leave you with talk to the persuadable nothing about us without us and this is everybody's business ending racism and pushing
0: for equality Fantastic. You all have a great weekend. We hope to see you back here next week for Intentional Conversations podcast. Thank you all so very much.